Um, I think I also, I have, have suffered from this. I know a lot of people do the idea that like other people are fully baked and I'm it, I wish I'd known what I know now, which is that everyone is getting up and starting over every morning. And even the people who look really polished and really organized and like they have their game plan done six, 12 months ahead of time, wake up every Monday morning and they're like, Oh God, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Should I keep doing what I thought I was going to do? Um, I wish I knew we were all kind of like soft in the middle in that way, like undercooked and that we're all just trying to get through the day. That would have been a good lesson, but now I know. And now I'll tell everyone who will listen to me. <laughs> Hello, you are listening to the late bloomer living podcast. And I am Yvonne Marchese, your host. This week, I'm talking to Nyla Bari, who is a leadership development expert, and we're talking about resilience in the face of career challenges. I'm so excited about this conversation, first of all, because she's just fun to talk to, (laughs) but also because I feel like it's so timely and so many people are having to dig deep in this crazy year we call 2020. (laughs) So, a little background about Nyla. She was a dean of students at the Columbia School of Business for 15 years and spent many years researching layoffs. Through her research, she developed a growing curiosity about what makes some people resilient in the face of having been laid off. And her research led her to question her own path in the world of academia, inspiring her to leave her comfort zone at Columbia to spend some time in the corporate world. And from there, she made the leap to open her own business, where she helps individuals and organizations develop their leadership capability in a way that's grounded in research and led with heart. She's the co-host of the Inside Job podcast and teaches and coaches at the graduate level at Columbia University. I can't wait for you to meet her. Let's go. All right. We are recording. It is official. Awesome. All right, lady. The real thing. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm so delighted to be here. Oh, man. So I want to give a shout out to Lou Blazer, who's that, which is how I found you. You were on a podcast episode of hers way back in March mm-hmm. at the beginning of the shutdown. And way back then, I, I mean, I, I knew then that I was going to want you on my podcast someday uh, because Aww. everything that you talked about just landed for me to be so relevant and uh useful and uh so i i'm i'm really excited to have you here oh i'm really happy to be here and i'm especially grateful that we met through lou who um has become a good professional colleague and friend over the years i've actually been on her podcast two times uh, to talk about work so Um, she's doing great work. I'm really excited to be uh, aligned with her work. And I will definitely have, I'm going to put your, a link to, um, her information. Hopefully I can figure out how to link to that particular episode of yours as well. Um, so people can go back and listen to it because it's super helpful. Um, I love Lou. Uh, so I know that you used to be the Dean of students for Columbia. 
right? Business school. Mm -hmm. Business school for 15 years. Is that right? Yeah. I spent, I spent nearly 17 years at Columbia. I'm always at the business school Mm -hmm. and I worked with the full-time students as their Dean of students. So my job was to steward their experience from more or less the time they decided that Columbia was the right MBA program for them until the time they crossed the stage. So Um, at graduation. So I was doing everything from course selection to course offerings, to academic support, to community life, to financial aid, really everything that makes it possible for them to come attend the school, have a great experience while they're there. Um, And I loved it. It was a wonderful job. Yeah. And really translates pretty well, I would imagine, into your expertise of leadership development. Yeah, well, you know, part of what was so interesting during my time at Columbia is that uh, the business school itself offers a really well-rounded foundation in business. And most of our students um, were coming in to do something to accelerate their careers. And when I came to the school in the late 90s, a lot of that still looked like what we think of as our classic MBA jobs of that time. So looking for jobs in banking or consulting. And we saw some of that shift over the 17 years I was at the school into kind of two big shifts. One was into leadership and the other thing was into entrepreneurship. Mm. So over the course of my years there, um, I got to play in a lot of different domains, but I was always interested in human behavior and change. So for me, I was always drawn to leadership. And about a year in to my time at Columbia, I knew that I wanted to keep going with my own education and I entered a doctoral program. Uh, in adult learning and leadership. It took me 13 years to finish that degree. So I was often in school at the same time as my students were in school. Uh, But I also had a great series of events happen during my time at Columbia where I was designing leadership programs and coaching my students and partnering with the faculty who taught leadership and doing all kinds of cool things. So yeah, I think the business school is where the fire was lit under me to become really interested in how people uh, grow in their leadership, but really in how they experience work, which is the kind of the heart of how I think about the work that I do is that I'm really, really interested in how we make sense and purpose and derive meaning from how most of us spend most of the day. The number I love to cite is that most adults will spend 90,000 hours of their lives working, which is more time then we're going to spend doing anything else. Yeah. So if that's true, and for most of us, that is true, then how do we make it worth it? That's the yeah. core of what I'm interested in. Yes. That has been the question of my adult life. <laughs> well, I love that. I think that's wonderful because you know what I find is a lot of people don't ask the question. They just kind of get, they've gotten on a treadmill. Mm-hmm in their twenties, after college, after grad school, and they just keep walking Yeah, and they don't ask themselves, like, what am I doing? Is this, is this what I want? Is this as good as it gets? Yeah. That's the question I want to explore with people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I started off in theater and, and that was my six-year-old self having made that decision <laughs> so wisely. Um, and uh, so that was, but that was all I ever considered. That was all I ever wanted to do. 
And so by the time I got to my 30s and I realized that it wasn't the end all be all for me, Mm. I was in a quandary. You know, I had picked up some admin skills by then, but kind of sketchy, to be honest with you. You know, I'd picked them up on (laughs) the job. I went and and truly at that point, I was like, I really do not know what I want to be when I grow up and what does make it worthwhile to spend that much of your time every day, you know, to make money. Okay. But, but, you know, for me, it's always been very important to have a sense of, uh, value and that having that time be well spent and not just, yeah, I totally agree with you. Check, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that I think you had mentioned to me that when you went back for your PhD, you were studying layoffs, right? Mm-hmm. And that somehow then translated into an idea of looking at how people are resilient in the face of layoffs. Yes. Am I on? Sure. I mean, that? here's how it happened. So I mentioned like I had the longest time in a doctoral program. I think I think that I set a record at Teachers College at Columbia University. I, I don't know that for certain, but I have a strong belief that I may have set the record for the longest tenure of a doctoral student. So um, we were hitting, you know, there was all these things happening to me, um, probably let's call it like 2013, right? So yeah, that would have been the math is right. I was turning 40 that year. I was hitting big anniversaries with the school in terms of how many years I'd been there. My boss, who I really, really respected, was leaving, Mm -hmm. and I was watching the clock tick at Teachers College at Columbia, to the point where, I mean, there were people there who were like, you're holding up traffic. Like, there are people who want this seat. Are you going to finish? Because, you know, the doctoral programs take a finite number of students, so they have the resources Uh. to support them. And I was, we were, my husband and I were with our kids in Oregon on vacation, and I was like, listen, we got to just make a decision. Like, what am I going to do? And he's like, I think like, if you want to finish, let's just get you finished. Like, let's just figure out what it's going to take to block and tackle this so we can get you done. And I was done with my coursework. I was done with all my exams. I had to collect the data to write a proposal to then collect more data to write the dissertation and defend it. And how old were your kids at this point? Uh, They were middle school and elementary school. So, I mean, you know, younger, younger, right? Not like babies. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, and not well. It has. It must be said. Like there were many nights I was up till two, three in the morning, um, trying to get a little bit of writing in, and then attempt to sleep for a few hours. Get up, shower, get the kids to school, drive to the city to go to work, try to hold myself together for a full day's work. Come home, parent, get back on. You know, back at the dining room table where I was doing my research. Right. So one of the things I had to do was pick a project that felt like something I could finish. You know, like it's, I wish I could say I had huge lofty research goals. I mean, I do think that I entered the whole experience thinking I'm going to write the great American dissertation if there is such a thing. And I'm going to become like a household name. I'm going to transform the field. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to try to finish. That's, that's going to be my end game. (laughs) And um, part of what I had to do is pick a topic that could get me there. And I had always been really interested in the question of resilience. And I was interested in the questions around that because of my day job, because I was with these MBA students through tumultuous times in their lives, right? Trying to radically change their careers, sometimes going through massive personal upheaval or change loss. I mean, everything, you know, when the student's with you for two years, you get a front front row seat 
to watch their life unfold. And sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's full of pain, right? Mm. And I would just notice and be curious about the students who were coming out of those moments, whether it was a personal breakup in a relationship or the loss of a parent or a series of massive disappointments professionally, like attending 35 interviews and getting zero offers mm. things. Mm -hmm. And I was always interested, why do some students come out of that? buoyant and prepared to move forward and why do some students just succumb to the difficulties and that was the operating set of questions in my mind I just had to find a context that was easy to measure and that context became jobs job loss mm -hmm. which is how I kind of backed my way into studying layoff I was interested in the recovery experience um, and job layoff was just something that I could wrap my head around I could talk to people that was a very finite definable experience in their lives yeah. and this would have unlike been, disappointment guessing, post 2008 it would time out so mm -hmm. you were look so you had a pretty good body of reese like i did you had a pretty good uh stats to work from right and, i did i did yeah. and in fact yeah. that my position at the school also helped me like what i ended up doing is i do qualitative research which means i do long form re uh, interviews and code the responses so i would spend an hour hour and a half with people going deep into their stories and so I would, you know, I cast a net saying to people I knew, like, this is what I'm doing some research on. I'd love to talk to people in your life who've been affected. And I got flooded with responses. So if I'm collecting data, 2013, 14, these are people who five years earlier had been impacted by the Great Recession. So, um, yeah, so I, I collected all that data. And the thing that was the most interesting and probably the most relevant for our conversation was how much learning from people who'd had this massive disruption was in my own sense of work and my own sense of what I wanted for my career. And in fact, the thing that was the biggest surprise to me was that when I was done, I was like, not only have I really learned a ton that I think is useful for the world, but I've also made the decision that I'm done with this particular chapter of my own life mm. and it's time to do something else. Mm -hmm. Wow. And how, wow. So did that hit you like a, like a sledgehammer all at once or was it a slow creep? <laughs> I'm a big believer in the slow creep. Um, it's funny. My husband was saying to me the other night, I, he walked into the, the TV room and I was watching Spotlight, that movie Spotlight about um, the Boston Globe Spotlight investigation team that uncovered the big... Oh. Um, problems oh, with the clergy in Boston. That. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I've probably watched that movie a dozen times, right? And it's, first of all, it's always on TV, which makes it easy to watch. But I'm always really interested in those procedural type dramas, like where uh -huh. things are slowly unraveled and pieces come together. It's like even something like Knives Out, you know, that movie that came yes. out probably last. Fantastic. So good, right? Yeah, so good. But you have to watch, I have to watch it like two or three times to be like, oh, there were clues. Oh, there was evidence. Oh, that's why, you know, that's why he's in that scene earlier. So that is the kind of movie I'm drawn to. That's also the way I like to live my life. Like it's a little bit like things make sense to me over time, right? So it's, I, I am quite unfortunately impulsive in some decisions, but when it comes to making sense of that decision in particular, the decision to exit Columbia after such a long time and a place where I really could have envisioned myself being happy for another 10 years. There were all these pieces of evidence that I would kind of look over my shoulder backwards and say, oh, right. That's why you felt that way at that meeting. Oh, right. That's why that person came into your life in that moment. Oh, that conversation contained a lot of clues. Um, so it was not a snap decision. It was really a hard exit. It was hard to change my life like that because I was so devoted 
team and to my students and to that organization. And they'd been so good to me. I mean, yeah. they had grown me really fast. They'd supported my doctoral work. Like they, it was, we were having a great time. And then Can you put a finger on the, the, the defining reason or moment that, you know, you had the slow burn, it sounds like leading into yeah. it. And all of a sudden the evidence starts, what, what was the tipping point for you? Like, where did you come to that, that, that cliff edge and go, yep, I'm going over. There's, there are two things that come to mind. Um, I just told a story to um, a woman who used to be one of my students who married a classmate who is the pivotal player in the story. Um, so there's what that one story and then there's a second one. The first story is that um, there was a class graduating and they were wonderful and I adored them and we were giving them a goodbye barbecue. And one of my students was at the barbecue and he maybe had an extra drink and he came up even goodbye and he said Nyla when I have kids I'm going to send them to Columbia and I'm going to have them come and look you up and I was like dude you're like 25 and at that time I'm like you're not even you're not even he was a dual degree I'm like you're not even done with school other degree to finish you're not even with anybody right now so you're not having a kid anytime soon by the time your kid comes to Columbia. That's like, we're talking 25 years from now. I'm not going to be here in 25 years. And he looks at me and he says, well, where else would you be? And I was like, holy cow. Like, he doesn't think I can be anywhere else. And the worst part was, I don't know how to answer that question. He asked me, where else would you be? And I had zero response for him. I was like, that is scary. Right? Yeah. So that happened. And that kind of got parked in my mind as one of those pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. And then a couple nights later, I was out with two girlfriends and they were just asking me how my research was going. And I was, at that point, I'd probably conducted like 40 interviews and I was looking for common themes. Like, how did you feel when you were laid off? What was the first set of thoughts you had around what you might do? All these things. And I, at that time, had never been laid off myself. And I was telling my friends how struck I was by how personally devastating the layoff experience was, mm. was for people, even in that time, that 2008, 2009 period when so many people were being impacted and people would tell these stories of just heartbreak, of just feeling, they would say things like, I feel so vulnerable. I feel so exposed. I feel so uncertain of my value. Mm -hmm. I felt like nobody had my back. And I'm sitting with my two girlfriends who are both employed and they look at me and they're like, Nyla, we have jobs and we feel that way. I feel, you know, my girl, one particular girlfriend was like, mm. I feel worried all the time. I don't know how to talk about my value. I don't know if somebody has my back at work. Like I have a job and I have all those same feelings. And that just struck me so powerfully that oh, yeah. the circumstance, right? The circumstances can be really radically different, but the experience of work can be so the same. Yeah, man. Do you, where, so wow. Did you dive into that with them at all? Did you we that? did talk about it. We and we talked about the fact. I mean, what it, it came to me. And now, of course, now it's six, seven, eight years later, and there's lots of conclusions I've drawn over time. And having worked now with hundreds of people who have been laid off or who have made the decision to change their lives professionally, but what it comes to for me, or what it came to at that moment, was the sense of like we have given up agency. There comes a point in our careers, and this goes back mm -hmm. to like you said earlier. You make a decision at six. Mm -hmm. Or more likely for most of us, we make a decision at like 20 or mm -hmm. 21, right? Right after college, or maybe if you go to grad school, right after grad school. Mm -hmm. 
so let's say 20, 21, 25, this is the path I'm going on. This is what I'm doing. And then we start saying to other people, our managers, our organizations, our mentors, if we have one, like, can you tell me when I'm doing a good job? Can you tell me when I'm ready for promotion? Will you notice me, reward me, grow me? We kind of abdicate responsibility almost without our knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what my friend was getting to. She's like, I, I just realized I'm not making the rules anymore for my own career. I'm waiting for someone to tell me mm, that I'm wow. good, wow. that I'm valuable. Yes. And so imagine if that's true. And then the company's like, oh, and we're done with you. We can't afford you anymore. Your function's being shut down. We have been in the habit of having someone else tell us that we're good or that we're not good enough, mm -hmm. in which direction to devote our energy, in which direction to grow or invest our time. And suddenly we've all given up agency. And that's, to me, one of the pieces of work I'm so passionate about is enabling people to update that blueprint, that operating manual of like, what do I want from work? Yeah. How do I decide what a good job is? How do I decide when it's time for a change? Not because the organization tells me, but because my internal mechanism tells me I yes. want something else. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. All that, all that in a bag of chips. I, you know, having been in the theater, um, to, to try to work as an actress, uh, it's all about, I mean, the real job of being an actor is auditioning. And so there's mm. always gatekeepers. There's always people mm -hmm. there to, and so your, your feedback is very immediate <laughs> as far as how you're doing. Um, you're either yeah. going to get the job or you're not. And by the time I reached my mid thirties and I was a little bit over the whole business, I was quite lost, not knowing what was going to be next. And I did end up taking some, you know, working from home part-time with the young kids and kind of piecing it together. And then when I did go back to work full-time for the first time after I'd had kids, I ended up in this, um, in this job and I was like, I was there three months and then I was promoted and then it was 2008 and I was mm. laid off. And as you said, it was, it was definitely like having the rug pulled out from under me. And it caused me to really go, wow, I'm 40 years old and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I have pretty limited skills, frankly, and I don't know what to do. And, uh, my husband was like, well, sleep on it. You know, it'll, it'll be, mm. you know, we'll see how you feel in the morning. And I literally, that's when I woke up and, and said photography. And I think and it came out of nowhere. Um, I love taking photos, but I hadn't, hadn't ever thought about doing it as a career. But as I reached my 40s, and I guess where I'm going with this, is I started to feel very unemployable at mm. my skill level versus what I needed to be making. And mm. I figured, and, and I really loved the idea of doing photography. And I thought, well, at least that's all on me. That's agency. Mm for the first mm -hmm. time in my life to not have to go through a gatekeeper to get a job. I could pick up a camera anytime I want to and take photos and create art. And then to get paid for it, yes, I need to go hustle to make that happen. But that's on me, full agency. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. That, I do. I totally see where you're, where you're talking about that sense of, yeah, looking for other 
looking to other people to ratify measure measure yeah. yeah and listen i mean i'm a huge believer in inter- interdependence i acknowledge and respect and actually like how much we work and operate and live in community i think that's, that's i'm not a believer in like every man is a lone island or whatever that mm-hmm. whatever that quote is yeah however and it's funny you know that my husband um was an actor in new york city um also early in his career and one of the things that i recall from those days when he was auditioning is also like the feedback, not only was it immediate, but it could be so arbitrary. Like, you're not our type. Like, what is right. that even, what is that? What do I do about that? Like, you know, and that's, and in effect, for an actor, it can be, you know, you have to have a lot of internal strength to continue through a process. It just simply takes a look and you're like, nah, not really, right. not for me, right? <laughs> yeah. But in a way, that's a little bit of what we all experience at work anyway, which is like, nah, you're not the type to grow here. You can't be invested and you're not management material. Like all those signals and messages and if we're not really cautious we start to really internalize that Mm -hmm. and say like that is the measuring stick we're handed right when we're in grade school or middle school or high school or college it's literal grades right it's like how you perform for your transcript Mm -hmm. then you get to work and there's there's a measurement system there too and the challenge is to understand like do is it clear to me what a good job is what successful promotion is, what it means to be their type is. And for most people, we're kind of standing there waiting for someone to explain the the map to us. And we're not getting very far in understanding it, myself included. As much as I grew in my organization at Columbia and had such a great experience there, I was always bumping in the idea against the idea of like, someone else is telling me when I'm ready. And I have stopped asking myself, what I want. I just am letting someone else decide on my behalf. Like it's time for growth. You get a new team, you get more people reporting to you, you get more responsibility. I had stopped asking myself any questions, which is why that comment that that student made to me, mm-hmm. where else would you go, was like a kick in the shins. Cause I was like, I really have no, here I am. I'm their advisor. I'm their dean. I'm their coach. And I don't know the answer to that question for myself. What do I want? I couldn't answer it. Um, so I was blindsided by that conversation. And so I had to engage in a process to figure out what could be next for me. And that, I wish I could say that was like, snap your finger and figure it out. But it is anyone who's been through it knows yourself included. It's painstaking to figure out like, what do I really want to do? What am I really good at? How does the market have an appetite for what I know how to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do I want to learn? How am I going to learn it? That is work. It's time consuming. And you, you ended up after you, you had that moment and then your conversation with your friends, what was the time frame like before you oh my decided God. to jump ship? Slow. Um, so I was, <laughs> I sometimes say like my separation from that job was almost two years. And that was in part because there are personal milestones I had to meet, right? All those moments, that moment with that student and the moment with my two girlfriends, happened probably at the three-quarter mark of my data gathering and writing my dissertation. So I had to finish that first. Like Mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared to make a big move until I was done. I finished that. I ended up pivoting internally within the school to take a bit of a consulting role while I sorted some things out. And then I was at a a pretty uh, notable inflection point for me at the time, which was I had some people saying to me, Nyla, go on your own. Like you could coach, you could teach, you could consult. I felt like I needed to have some other experiences under my belt. And I specifically wanted some corporate experience um, Mm -hmm. because 
I'd really only had a handful of jobs before arriving at Columbia. And I thought I should have a few more things under my belt. So I ended up taking a job in learning and development and talent for a medical diagnostics company, which um, offered me lots of things I'd never seen before in terms of corporate human resources work, being in a private equity environment. Really interesting in the end, not for me. I ended up staying twice as long as I had planned to. I thought I was going to go for two years. I stayed for nearly four. Mm -hmm. The work itself was really interesting. I worked with a really, really smart group of people. I really enjoyed them. But ultimately, I knew that I did not want to be part of a big company like that. And that wasn't even as big a company as it could have been. But I had discovered actually through some of the work I was doing there, how much autonomy matters to me Mm -hmm. and how much independence matters to me. And I thought if I'm really going to be able to create a piece of work or a portfolio of work that speaks to this core issue or question I'm interested in is how do we experience work that I'm going to have to design it myself. I don't think there's a single job out there that would let me play in all the different sandboxes I want to play in. So that's what I've been doing. So I left the school, did about a four-year visit in corporate, and now I've been on my own for a year and a half. Wow. And here I am. I love the way you put that with having all the sandboxes that you want to play in. I love that. I mean, right now that feels like the right format for me. And, you know, listen, who would have imagined that that would have been the place I was trying to, you know, the the sandbox idea would have been real during this kind of world that we're living in. But it's turned out to offer me a lot of, you know, sand sand can be a very, a very uh, safe place to land, right? It can be soft. So it turned out okay. Yeah, it's turned out okay. That's great. I, you know, it makes me think of I was, uh, I was listening to that uh, interview that you did with Lou, and I have a quote from you. Um, oh, oh, and I think it kind of uh, speaks to this. Um, you said our ability to move ourselves forward is largely based on behavior, largely based on actions we can take. And uh, you went on to say a few other things. And you said, while the circumstances can feel overwhelming, ambiguous, and scary, all we can manage is what's happening in our internal environment, how we're moving ourselves and the actions we're, how we're managing ourselves and the actions we're taking as a result. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like me. (laughs) Boom, mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably say exactly the same thing right now. I mean, I think that's one of the big takeaways from the research I did. And, you know, it turns out the research I did, as I've said, really inspired my own action and my own choices. It has been the foundation for so much of the work I do as a uh, teacher and a coach. Now, what I learned is that the people who came out of career disruption, the most resilient were taking action, even if they were terrified, even if they were uncertain. I think it's the thinking that can become really, really paralyzing. And I don't believe we can always think our way out of problems. I think we, sometimes we have to act our way out of problems. And then it will, our belief system will change as a result, but we have to take action. And what I found, and I found to be a great relief in my research, was that the people who were thriving were trying things. They were just trying, taking small imperfect steps in a particular direction and often because everything else they tried hadn't worked and they were just like I got to keep trying something else right because a lot listen I will tell you most of the people I spoke with for that project ended up in a in a category where they settled for something they just kind of 
took a job, a set of experiences, a set of skills Mm -hmm. that ultimately came to an end and they just basically rinsed and repeated, did it again. And their experience of work didn't change, right? That's what I'm looking for. I'm not just looking for you. Are you employed? I'm looking for, do you have an experience of work that is meaningful, purposeful, teaching you things that you define as satisfying? Mm -hmm. And most people didn't because what they would just do is like, I got to get back to work. I'm just going to go find somewhere else to go do what I know how to do. I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm just going to get back to work. I understand that instinct 190%. Yep. Right. We have to provide. Mm -hmm. We all have, right? We have to provide. We want stability. We want to let our moms stop worrying. Like we all want that, that sense of, you know, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. But what I'm looking for and what I believe the people who work with me are looking for is something more substantial, something more meaningful. Those people were just acting their ways into new ways of thinking, right? They were trying experiments. They were connecting with people differently. And the relief for me was that they didn't have to have naturally optimistic attitudes. They just had to try things. And so what I try to bring to people is, listen, let's just experiment with behaviors and see if we can't shake up the belief system you have, shake up the reality that when you say something, Yvonne, like, I didn't have any marketable skills. I'm like, hmm, that sounds interesting. Let's find out. How true is that? Right? So. Oh, yeah. Yep. Right? They, because they we were, all carry That was a story systems. I was telling myself. Absolutely. And, um, and I've now come to realize how many of my skills, um, let's call my skills soft skills. Um, they, they. Ironically, the more difficult skills to develop by the way, the soft skills. And by the way, I can learn anything on YouTube and I can learn anything. (laughs) Seriously. Sure. Can I tell you about a dream I had? This is hilarious. I did not expect to go this down, down this road. I had a, I took (laughs) after the 2008, um, uh, layoff. I ended up doing, going, studying photography. Um, and at the same time doing a six month job search. And it was a, it was a rather brutal job search. And in the end, I ended up in a place where I, I knew I was, I knew it wasn't ideal. I knew it wasn't Mm. the perfect fit, but I needed something Mm. at that point. And so boom, there we go. Um, and I was there much longer, as you said, than you, than you expected to be at where you landed. And, uh, I, I stayed longer than I expected to. Um, and I did finally make my exit and, uh, I dreamt last night that I was back at that particular job vying for another job with them. And yes, it was the weirdest dream. And, 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 and they were like, well, you know, we don't really have anything that's right for what you, you know, and I was like, well, do you have something else? Cause you know, and they were like, well, yeah, but you need to know this and this and this. And I was like, well, I can learn that. I can learn that. In your dream, you were saying that? Yes. I was like, <laughs> I, 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 can, I, can, I can learn anything. I've done it before, you know? Yeah. 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 So I wonder what this all means. Oh my gosh. Me too. Cause I wouldn't go, I would Mm. not go back in a million years. Yeah. Hilarious that there I am selling myself, but at the same time, my level of confidence now is, has grown so far beyond where it was then. And it's because I've since learned about myself that I can dig in and I am resilient 
and I can, I can learn anything that I need to learn to be able to do something. And I love that all those skills that I had that I considered not valuable are actually quite valuable. And, and, you know, and, and I think we underestimate ourselves. Um, I do know. And the, the way I sometimes say this is that our lives are enormous sets of data if we're willing to look at them, right? But I think what happens is that we become afraid and we diminish our own achievements and we just kind of shut down the possibility that we contain any wisdom or greatness or ideas or inspiration. And we look to the outside. Mm-hmm. Someone else, this goes back to this conversation around measurement. Someone else has to tell me yes. if I'm ready. Validation. Someone else has to tell me. Totally. Yeah. Now, yeah. listen, I don't want to be naive. I'm never, I'm pretty grounded in reality. Like if you're, if you're missing core sets of skills or experiences that are required for a job that you love to think about, yeah, then maybe you need to go back to school. You need to acquire a set of skills or experiences. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't even stop and assess. What am I great at? Like when I work with people now, there's a, pretty loosely formulated process, I think about. And the first thing is, of course, what do you want? You know, which most of us, as we've talked about, don't get to ask ourselves after the age of 25. And then where are you coming from? Like, what are all the great things you know how to do and that you've Mm -hmm. already contributed to the world? Mm -hmm. And just this morning, I was talking to a woman who's in one of my career groups who has been out of the marketplace for some time because she's been home with her kids. And she was in absolute tears, devastated at the possibility that she had nothing to show for herself. Mm, mm-hmm. Yet, when we dig into how she spends her time, what she does for her community, for her kids' school, the kinds of classes she takes for fun, um, there's so much richness, so much complexity of thought, so many success stories, but she just is already persuaded they don't matter. So she doesn't look at herself as a primary source of data. And it's like, we can keep hunting and hunting and hunting for someone to tell us how great we are. We have to do the work to believe that we're great first, that there's something worth telling, that our lived experience, the things we know how to do intuitively, the problems that we solve for our family, our community, our schools, our former colleagues who still call us for advice, those are things we have to take credit for and claim. And that's one of the behaviors that came out of my research that I learned about when you are unhooked from a job, when the job is gone and you can't say I'm the director of marketing, you have to learn to talk about the things you know how to do separate mm-hmm. from your title, separate oh, from your that. organization. Yes. So that's an exercise I put everyone through now, whether or not you have a job. Like for, and as mentioned, for most of us, our titles are not always great indicators of what we're actually doing anyway. <laughs> right. We have to learn how to talk about the things we know how to do. The relief right. we bring problems at work or problems in our communities. We all know how to do things, but we're not trained to look within and to build a vocabulary and a comfort in talking about this, especially women. So I'm evangelical about this. We have to learn how to talk about our greatness. Right. And I think it's so great. I mean, part of what you're providing for people is that that backstop to, to throw something against and, Mm. and, and have, have you say, really, you don't have any skills. Let's unpack (laughs) that. Right. (laughs) And sometimes I think, how, how do you do that for yourself? Like, um, you know, you, you could, I guess, but I think there's a great value in being able to go to either a professional for help or, to go to a trusted um, 
somebody you trust who is going to tell you the truth and, and, and say, Hey, what do I, what do I bring to the, what do you see that I bring to the table that I don't see? Totally. And you're, you're, um, touching on another piece of behavioral research that I found in my pe- the people I was studying, which is that a lot of them were doing this. They were going to their networks, the closest, most trusted, most intimate members of their network and saying, what about, what are my blind spots? What are the things that I offer that you really value and that really advances the way that you work because I'm around and I'm helping you think things through? that I might not even be giving myself credit for. And so I think you're right. Like I I think we can do some of that work on our own, but there's so much value in doing that in partnership. It doesn't have to be a coach. Of course, I love the idea of people investing in their careers as as much as they would invest in their, you know, the cleanliness of their teeth or their, their physical well-being at the gym, Mm -hmm. but a good friend, a partner, a colleague, Mm -hmm. a trusted manager can offer that line of sight. And I think those are the conversations we should be having um, that's how we start to take credit and feel really great about our contributions and see our contributions. I mean, that's the definition of the blind spot, right? Like we talk about that sometimes in being developmental, like my blind spots, always an area that works against me that I'm not aware of. I'm not aware that I talk so much in meetings. I'm not aware that when I mean to be friendly, I'm really overbearing, but sometimes our blind spots are really positive. Like I don't realize how creative my solutions are. I don't realize how good I am at bridging gaps between two functions who are disagreeing about potential path forward. So I'm a huge believer in engaging the people who know you in these conversations. Yeah. When you um, were talking about uh, taking action, I mean, you, you, you've mentioned it, I think a couple of times that uh, sometimes it's about believing or have, you know, having, having a, maybe a confidence in yourself and then, and then following the action follows that. And sometimes it's about taking action and then the confidence or the belief then follows. Um, for you, what did, what did you do? What were some of the, when you're looking back on how you made the change, what did you do for yourself that enabled you to make the leap? Um, you mean the leap to go independent ultimately? Yeah. To work for myself? Yeah. Well, um, I learned to talk to myself more than I listen to myself. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways for me of the last few years of my life. Like the internal voice inside is always um, worried about the future. It's like, is there going to be enough security? Will there be enough people who are you to think that you have something unique to contribute to the world? Like all those terrible messages we all get from the little demon who lives in our minds. Mm-hmm. And I read something some time ago about, I'm going to blank on his name, but I'll send it to you at some point. He was, I think, a, a like a triple Ironman of some sort, like some ridiculous athlete who ran, I don't know, hundred miles in a day or something. And the question he was asked is like, how do you do it? And he said, I just talked to myself the whole way through. I can't listen to myself because the voice is going to tell me to stop. And I want to keep going. So I got to talk to myself the whole way through. So I imagine this guy running for a hundred miles, just talking to himself. So I do that pretty much all day long. Oh, like, am I scared? Yes, I'm scared, Nyla, but you're capable of doing this. And you know what? People who are less trained than you are doing it. And you know, if you help one person that was worth trying this thing you want to try, like there's just a constant running of support in my mind for myself. So that's something I learned how to do. And I do find that it, changes the belief systems I have, right? That action of talking to myself stops me from believing that mistakes are fatal. 
you know, I mean, there's really, what am I going to break right along the way? I really can't break anything. So let's just keep trying. Um, I also, like I just said about getting feedback about your blind spots, I did not do anything alone, right? I have like a group of advisors and friends mm -hmm. who I've kind of gathered along in the, over the years and they continue to be a source of wisdom and support sometimes through phone calls, sometimes through text messages. Um, they just help me think it through. They help me keep going. And I think I do the same for them. I mean, that's one of the gifts of these kinds of little cohorts is that they're very mutual in nature. It's been, um, it's been like the biggest, the biggest uh, lesson for me this year is working with other yeah. people. And, and yeah. I tend to be a little bit of an individualist and tend to try to figure stuff out on my own, you know, and, <laughs> and get shy about asking for help and, and feeling like, um, you know, that, I don't know, like that I, that I'll owe somebody, but that I don't really have anything to, to give them in return. Right. That's a value right. as well, you know, so, so many things I've stopped myself in the past from asking for help. And this year I made it a real concerted decision to say, no, this, this is the year that I help is my word for the year. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to offer help and I'm going to look that. for that, you know, look for building relationships. Um, and, 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 and that, that whole idea of, 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 you know, being with people and, and supporting each other. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we know one of the things that I, your comment just made me think of is that I think sometimes we think help has to be so significant. Like it has to be like, I'm going to balance your books for you. Like I'm going to do something really hard when in fact, like the greatest help is just being the ear on the phone or just making me laugh mm -hmm. or sending me that article that made you think of me, even though it has nothing to do with work. It has to do with knives out or whatever, you know, procedural drama I'm hooked on in the moment in time. That is help. And I can fall for the trap of thinking like every action has to have huge impact. And sometimes it's like, just let's go for a walk. That's all yeah. you need, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those are some of the things that those are the actions I took. And I think I just, I stopped also, I mean, a lot of this is getting my ego in check, right? Like just, you know, honestly, if I slip up, who really cares? Who's really going to notice Right. I mean, no, let's be honest. There's not that many people paying attention. Right. Like everyone's the star of their own sense of ourselves, don't we? Totally. And, oh my gosh, yeah. it's going to be so embarrassing. And, ah, rah, 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 and yeah, and then people are going to spend a lot of time talking about me later. Like nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, nobody I, cares. I, nobody cares. <laughs> They're so busy with their own chatter that yeah. Everyone is the star of their own movie. I am not the star of your movie. Right. I'm only the star of my movie. <laughs> that is such a good point. What do you wish you had known when you, when you set out on your own? Um, I think I wish I had known I could have done it sooner. Mm. And again, it's not that I have tons of regret about um, the time I spent in corporate. It was really informative. Uh, but I know that I stalled and I didn't have to. Um, I think I also, I have, have, suffered from this i know a lot of people do the idea that like other people are fully baked and i'm yes. it i wish i'd known what i know now which is that everyone is getting up and starting over every morning mm. and even the people who look really polished and really organized and like they have their game plan done six 12 months ahead of time wake up every monday morning and they're like oh god 
what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Should I keep doing what I thought I was going to do? Um, I wish I knew we were all kind of like soft in the middle in that way, like undercooked and that we're all just trying to get through the day. (laughs) That would have been a good lesson, but now I know. And now I'll tell everyone who will listen to me. (laughs) And so true. That is exactly one of the lessons I'm learning this year. It's, it's, and it's part of it is, is opening up myself to be vulnerable enough to allow people to know that about me. And, uh, and then, you know, or somebody else opens up and then I'm like, well, I better jump in there with you and let you know. And me too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And what a great chance it is to create together too, right. To, to build with somebody and to support them and to be supported. Like just, again, it's like getting out of my own way, getting the ego out of it. Um, Yeah. I'm still learning that I'll probably, you know, forget this lesson by tomorrow morning and have to start over, but that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's why they call it a practice, right? Yeah. I do have to, I do often end up questioning my motives. It's like for, for what I think I want, um, Mm. well, is that because, is that that ego thing or is that really what I want? You know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I try to go like to what is like, what are the principles? Like I try, even like when I think about how I parent my kids, like I try not to be very rules heavy and more principle based. And I think about my own career growth and the way I want to support people in that same way, like being principle based. So for me, the principles I'm looking at experience through the work I do is alignment with my purpose, as I understand it now, Mm -hmm. a deep sense of connection to people and to ideas, which are the things that really matter to me. And growing by like constantly feeling like there's something new to be interested in and sink my teeth into. Yeah. Um, that those are like really significant values for me, and they're like the principle. So I feel like if I as I'm trading off how to spend my time, what to invest in, what to look away from, I'm like, okay, let's bring those three criteria up. Where does it fit with my purpose? How does it connect me to the people or ideas that I'm really passionate about? And how does it help me grow? And if it how can't answer sorry to interrupt. How do you keep track of that? Like when you're in the moment, mm. I, how, like, cause, cause yeah, I've, I've, I've got a couple of those set too. And then, and then things happen and life goes, you know, and yeah. How, do you have like a method for tapping yourself back into those principles? Is there- um, I would love to tell you that I'm like deeply routined about this. I do, for me, the solution is pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not as disciplined as I would love it to be some day, some months I'm like, I am just a goddess around the journaling, like mm-hmm. just like an exemplar of what this should be like. Not always, and not right. most of the time lately, for sure. Um, it helps to have repeated that to myself so often that it's like second nature. Like I do, I do have like, what are my reasons to say yes? That's what I call it, right? Like my reasons to say yes to something. Mm. They are purpose, connection, and growth, right? Like if those three things or two of those three things can be met in substantial ways, great. So it helps that they're really available to me from a memory point of view, but the exercise of writing it down or talking it out mm-hmm. with someone else is really the way to keep it clear and not get sucked into the kind of crave monster Yes, that we all can get sucked into. Which also um, implies that you, uh, when you have reasons to say yes, that implies that, that you're also saying no to things. That has, that is a real growth area for me. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And especially because 
you know, I sometimes say like, I'm kind of a greedy girl. Like I have a big appetite for ideas and Mm -hmm. opportunities and new friendships and new projects. And I have to be careful not to overwhelm myself and not to overpack my schedule. Yeah. Not just because it doesn't result in my best work, but because it just wears me down. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for instance, only this year have I occasionally said to clients um, or prospective clients, I don't, I don't think I either, I'm not the right coach for you. I'm not the right person for this project. Or I just simply couldn't do a great job for you given the amount of time I have on my hands. That is really a new thing for me. Good for you. Because my I'm instinct- I'm still learning that one. I am like, uh, I'm a greedy girl too. Yeah. I love that you said that. <laughs> you know I, what? I, that's like, I, I would wear a t-shirt that said that. You want to go make t-shirts? Let's go make t-shirts. Let's do like, it. We'll have the greedy In girl many club. ways, it's what I, I'm a greedy girl. Like I want a lot of things. I do. Yes. Um, but I also have to think about, like I'm in a business of helping people have a better experience of work, right? Like that is a service that I render is, is to offer you thought partnership in that. If I can't do a good job for you because I'm taxed and I'm spread so thin, then I'm not helping you. I'm not helping me. And that I learned the hard way, unfortunately, um, because I was burning myself out by taking too many things on. But so when you ask like, what is the practice for going back to that? Um, it is structured discipline, like stop the noise, just pay attention to whether you can do a good job at this. You want to do this. Is this what you want to do? Mm -hmm. Um, But that means, you know, getting the appetite in check, which is a piece of work in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I have a tendency to go, well, first of all, to, to say yes too often when, when asked to do something because it's a people pleasing thing. Um, Mm. And, uh, and then end up, somehow some way shape or form failing um or being too slow or whatever and then yeah. uh yeah it's tricky and then the other thing that i'm greedy about is uh is ideas and mm. finding my i find myself you know uh going down research rabbit holes and being like, which is, which is great. I mean, I, I, I love it, you know, but I love but, it. I know. I hear you. Time, it like hurts. Like, it feels so good. I know. Yes. Yes. And then you know, all the other stuff that needs to get done is like, Oh, okay. I know. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, the kids want dinner. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> that. So, but I think what I love about what you just said is that you realize for you, it's a people pleasing thing, right? Cause I think if you know that, then you can start to think about alternatives. Right. For me, it's less of a people pleasing thing. And I've realized for me, a lot of it had to do with my mindset around uh, abundance or scarcity. Like I would say yes to things. Cause I was like, maybe it won't come around again. Mm-hmm. If I say no to this partnership, if I t- say no to this piece of work, mm-hmm. then perhaps the source will run dry and I'll be begging for that opportunity to come back to me. And I realized once I realized, I, I wish I was, I'm probably, I'm not enough of a people pleaser. It could be kind of difficult actually. But um, what I realized is that unless I addressed my thoughts around enough, you know, was there enough work? Is there enough out there? Then I was always going to say yes to things I didn't really, I felt kind of lukewarm about because. Did you set boundaries I, for yourself to say, okay, this is enough? Did you identify it? No, I think what it had to do, I have not done that. And I don't know if, I don't know if 
maybe that's an interesting question. I'll have to spend some time thinking about that. What I had to think about was if, and this comes for me, it shows up with like projects, right? Like someone calls and says, Hey, there's this thing going on. And like consulting is a piece of work I do. I like to consult for particular organizations, especially if I'm really aligned philosophically with a particular leader in the people or talent space. Some of those things come along my way and I'm, I can tell I'm lukewarm. Like I can feel it in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, eh, I could do that, but it doesn't really fire me up. But I would notice I'd say yes anyway, because my thinking would be like, well, what if next quarter I want the cash and that job's not available anymore? Mm-hmm. So I had to realize, like, I'm not saying yes for any reason other than that future fear of like, maybe it will dry up. And then I thought, what is making that fear? So re- it's, it hasn't happened yet. So what am I so worried about Yeah, that I'm making bad choices in the present to try to protect against the future that hasn't happened yet? Mm-hmm. That piece of work personally, um, I think is, is, you asked before, like, what do I wish I'd known? I don't think I could have known that. But if I could have, that would have saved me from taking on projects that I was kind of eh about. Yeah. Um, but that is like everyone's got their mountain to climb, and that's my mountain to climb. Yeah. Is managing it's that whole my thing of when you know better, scarcity. you do better, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's like I could never have known like what it was to be a parent until I was suddenly a parent. You think you know. Yeah. No, and you think you know every two years you get like a re-education. Of, oh, this is what it means to parent a teenager. Oh, because I like just wrap my head around parenting a tween. Yeah, that's like every day of my life feels like that. That constantly moving target or, you know, oh, yeah, it's insane. It's insane. The doctorate of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oh my gosh, this has just all been so great. I, I want to see, <laughs> I, I am wondering if you, if you were to, what would it, what advice would you give somebody right now who, let's say somebody's been laid off mm. and you were to say, okay, try this first, second, mm. Um, I don't know that I would say try this first. I would think what I would say is help me understand what things you need and the things you want. Um, most of my work, like when I do a lot of work with people who are just not having the optimal experience of work as they define it, right? They're just unhappy, right? We all know people who are like that, who are just Mm -hmm. kind of cranky from pretty much 8 p.m. Sunday night until 5 p.m. Friday afternoon, right? Yes. Those people, I always say to them, what do you really want? This goes back to our, the early, early part of our conversation. That is usually several weeks in the making to unpack. If I'm talking to someone who is laid off, I'll also ask what you need, right? Because that disruption, especially like I'm thinking about the people I'm talking to these days, loss of income, loss of health insurance, those are real practical needs. They would never say those don't matter. Those matter deeply. Mm-hmm. So I would start by saying, let's figure out needs and wants. Um, and that's usually where I began. Uh, for some people, it's super easy for them to answer that. For some people, it's very complex. So I want to give them the time for that. The next thing I always ask people is, you know, let's talk about what the language I use is where are you coming from? So what are the sets of experiences, education, training, key skills that you have that are of use in the marketplace? 
that you can start thinking about building a strong narrative around so that you can start having the right conversations with the right kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, that's usually where I begin. And I, it, it, the thing about the way that I work is that it's patient. It's not like, hey, go to LinkedIn and throw out 100 resumes. I don't find that that's deeply satisfying, or, nor do I think that it really yields great rewards, especially right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to stem the bleeding, if there is bleeding, around money in particular. And then I, you know, so for some people, that means picking up consulting projects or doing something where they can use their skills. Mm-hmm. Um, for other people, they have the time and the patience and the ability to really reflect. And I, I want that that's how I usually guide people because I think that yields long-term satisfaction. That is um, the solution I know to give us the capability to keep adjusting and pivoting as the world demands of it. And as we demand it of ourselves, Um, we can always put a patch on things if we need to, but I'm looking for long-term health, not just a bandaid. Love it. Yes. You got to go deep, right? You do. You got a good I hope we can. I mean, that's what I think in 90,000 hours of our lives, we can skim the surface. We can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think you're it stuck with the same stuff. Life. I think, I, I think, I think if you're skimming the surface, you're never going to get anything different than what you've already got. And if you're not happy with what you have, you got to go deep. And here's the thing, right? If I think we, can there are there's a school of thought that will say just work just phone it in right like just get through the week 30 40 50 years of your life getting through the week mm. is a long time it's a yeah. lot of life that yeah. we are just skimming the surface right. i bet there are people who are doing that that's not who I am. And that's not the kind of people who are drawn to work with people like you or with people like me. Like, I think if people there, I'm not, I'm not navel gazing for navel gazing's sake, but I'm like, we're given a shot to do something that is useful, inspiring, meaningful, and something will happen to, in our lives to wake us up to think, oh my God, is this what I want? Is this what I should be doing with my time? And I want to be there to facilitate those conversations for the people who have that appetite. It goes back to appetite. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. I figure, you know, at 50 plus years, 52 years old, if I stay healthy, I've probably got 30 years at least ahead of me that I can be yeah. working. And I don't ever really want to retire as long as I'm doing work that is interesting and fulfilling, you know, and, you know, I can't imagine anything else at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's so interesting that you say it that way, because again, I think there's this outdated model of like, well, it's a job and a job is separate from our life. Right. right? And, then, and it's like, suck it up, buttercup, go, 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 go make your paycheck. Right. Right, right. Get your watch at whatever number of years you get it. I guess I look at it and I, the way I, the language I use is rooted in the belief I have, which is that the work that we do in the world is the expression of ourselves, Uh right? Like my purpose is to facilitate the conditions and the conversations to help people explore how they become themselves through work. Work is the channel through how I became who I am and I'm becoming who I'm becoming. And, you know, we talked earlier about having teenagers. My 16 year old is a 
illustrator and cartoonist. That is the way she makes sense of the world. That is her work, not because she's paid for it, but because it's how she's navigating, right? My toolkit is conversation, teaching, facilitation, coaching. I'm just trying to make sense of the, of the world. That is my work. So it's not going to stop when I'm 65 unless I intend to drop dead at 65, right? Like I have to be mm -hmm. my toolkit for continuing to navigate deeper into adulthood because that's the tools I have to deploy and that I've learned and that I'm continuing to hone, right? I think about that, like that's where I don't love the language around jobs for that because a job is just a, there's like a framework around it. It's the work I do that is mine. It's a big that I'm really interested day. in. It's a big yeah. of your day. <laughs> my whole life, think of 90,000 hours. I don't yeah. know how many times I can say that number. Oh never stops shocking never people, right? My, yeah, 90,000 hours. I've got that like in my, in the back. That'll be our second t-shirt. <laughs> We're going to have all kinds of merch after this conversation. <laughs> Get ready, folks. <laughs> Come back to the website. We'll have it ready for you. <laughs> I love uh, it. So what? Besides Knives Out, uh, mm. books, movies, uh, mm, mm. anything has sure. been has rocked your world and really, what would you say has has influenced you and who you are? Uh, sure. Um, I talk ad nauseum. So, you know, um, my friend Eric Johnson and I have a podcast called Inside Job. And I think three times this month I've talked about Anne Lamott who is the author of Bird by Bird and Operating Instructions yes. and a handful of really beautiful novels. But she is kind of my go-to. I can't say enough good things about how this woman's thinking has shaped my life. Anne Lamott, look her up. Um, I'll also mention Parker Palmer, who is an educator out of the Quaker tradition, who does a lot of work around this idea of learning in community and how we uncover ourselves through community. So he's really inspiring to me, especially these days. Ooh, I've got to um, check that out. I've not heard of it. Yeah, it's, he, he has a philosophy um, around circles, around bringing people together to help, he calls them clarity circles, to help people answer big questions in their lives around what they should be doing, their purpose. He's a big believer in this idea that your life is a source of inspiration and there's so much evidence in your own life about what you're called to do and fulfilling that calling. Um, so Parker Palmer, heavily uh, recommend him. Uh, Pam Slim who's a business coach who I do some work with. She wrote a book. I read, I can picture myself reading it in my old office at Columbia. So it probably was like my old office. I mean, like my very first office, which is probably like the late, maybe like 2007 or eight. And her book's called Escape from, Cub from Cubicle Nation. Escape from Cubicle Nation. And it was like an, one of the earliest books I can remember that suggested that like the path towards career satisfaction could be independent of an organization, oh. could be through entrepreneurship. So mm -hmm. um, huge believer in her work. Um, and then I think finally for this idea of, for me, one of the people who shaped my thinking around scarcity and abundance is Tosha Silver, who's a spiritual teacher, mm -hmm. um, who I turn to and I feel like, you know, that thing we were talking about, like, will there be enough work if I say no to this? Will I starve? Um, her thinking on abundance and also on just kind of believing that things are intended for you and that you can tap into innate wisdom that allows you to know what is right for you and wrong for you mm -hmm. and trusting. Um, so it is, it's spiritual. It's a little bit out there, but I'm, a, I'm also 
a little bit out there. So it works for me. I'm out there with um, you, girl. Oh, we got yeah, a let's do it. Thanks somehow. Another <laughs> one. Come up with it. God, so many t-shirts. <laughs> um, yeah. So Tosha Silver. And the other thing I'll have to say is that I, um, I have, especially in 2000, in 2020, I've been reading one poem a day and posting it on Instagram. Mm. And that has been like a source of such grounding beauty for me. Um, you know, I was a lit major in college and I've always loved to read fiction yeah. and poetry. And I have found that to be just such a grounding activity. So I, I turned to my collections of poetry throughout. Have to go back and look um, through your Instagram feed for those. That's I do every day cool. on my story from Monday through Friday. I always post the poem that I'm reading that day I'm gonna have, um, in the story. And then of so, course so I will stories. There are my stories, but I've saved a bunch of them. You can check it out in my highlights. You can. Awesome. Um, but then, of course, I'm going to say, just watch Knives Out. But like, you have to watch it like four times to make sense of it. And yes. same thing with Spotlight. Like, one's sublime and really rooted in like a very interesting story of huge proportions. Knives Out is hilarious and like dark. But <laughs> the idea of like looking at things from multiple perspectives and figuring out where the clues were, God, I love it. If you've got other recommendations like that, man send them my way. Oh, I'm going to have to think on that for you. And I love that mm. so many of the things that you've been talking about are people that I didn't know about before. So I'm excited to, oh, to check them so out glad. for the poetry. Is there uh, are there a couple of poets that you tend to go back to? You know what I well? love? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of collections. Some of them are by Garrison Keillor he used to have, I don't know if he still does. He used yes. to have a show on the, on NPR. Uh huh. Um, and called the writer's almanac. Thing. Yes, yes. My husband had the writer's almanac. The yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't because I don't commute anywhere anymore. I don't even know if it's still on. But it, when I I have so many memories of just crossing the George Washington Bridge, and I would know that between the GWB and Columbia was about like a ten minute part of my drive. So I would flip on whatever I was listening to. I'd flip on the writer's almanac to hear him talk, and he would talk. You know the way it's designed is this date in history is significant for, from a literary perspective because so-and-so was born or so-and-so published this book or whatever. And then he closed with a poem. Yes. So he has a couple of published volumes that um, came out of that that I love. I will mention two names. Um, Wendell Berry is a poet who I love. Mm -hmm. And then what, uh, Wendy Cope. And Cope? Um, How do you spell it? C-O-P-E. C-O-P-E. I don't know. Her. Yeah. And she has a poem called The Orange, I think it's called, which is like one of these like 12 line poems that just like every time you read it, you're like, yes, oh, that is why wow. yeah. poetry was invented. Yeah. Mary, so check it out. I'll send you a copy. Current favorite. Oh, come on. I love her. Oh, oh my gosh. She's really, mm. I think, become a, quite a household name almost yeah. for anybody who likes poetry. Um, yeah. And they're Don't saying they call her like America's favorite poet. I think I feel like I have a book that, that says that on. It, yeah, I that's think so. so funny. Yeah. I think she's one of the only like household names. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know and who else could fall into that category. Prior to maybe uh, a year or two ago, I had no idea who she was. Um, you know, a friend of mine who's a poet and uh, loves poetry mm. turned me on to her, and I've just been like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, they say that. Uh, poetry is having a bit of a, a moment. It's uh, mm. people are digging in a little and uh, going back to going back to poetry right now. Uh, yeah. So it seems. Yeah. You know, I don't even know. I think I said I moved into this downstairs um, 
bedroom, which we converted into an office. And there's bookshelves in here as there are everywhere in my house. And they just so happened that a stack of poetry books were just sitting at eye level when I started working down here. So I just started, you know, flagging the ones I loved. And I was like, I want to share these because sometimes they're just, you know, God, there's, I, there's another one I want to send to you. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the poet right now, but the thrust is like, sometimes things don't turn out as terrible as you think they're going to like the good guys win. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to send that to you too. Oh, Maybe you can put it in, me, the sh- yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Yeah. 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 Very cool. And what, what's currently anything currently besides knives out? <laughs> Oh, knives out. I might watch it again tonight. What's like current, like on your bookshelf? Are you in the middle of something? Mm. It's really exciting. Um, Yeah. Well, I have to say I just finished reading. So I do read, although I read a ton of nonfiction, I also read a lot of fiction and I just finished the rules of civility (gasps) um, by, oh my God. So holy cow, I finished that book and the same night I started it over. So I'm back on chapter three. I was like, how have I never found this book? 46 years I've been reading and I have not found this book till today. (laughs) And I, then it's funny, I mentioned it, I actually put it in my most recent newsletter and somebody wrote back to me saying I read the book five times. And I was like, why have we been keeping this a secret? If it's this, it's a book about New York City in like the late 1930s and this like society and this young girl making her way. I mean, holy cow unbelievable yeah. and it so is i'm rereading the whole that. idea of the the unreliable narrator kind of you know holy i don't want to give away too much but don't no! give it away but it's so good and it it really you know sometimes you read the novel with the unreliable narrator and like a quarter of the way through you're like i don't buy it. this guy's not telling the truth and then this one you're like oh my god i freaking fell for it i really believed it. oh my god oh my god did you read Gentleman in um, Moscow? Same, same. Author? I did, and that's I read that one first, right? I read Me too. My, read and a, then Rules. Of I read Civility that with my book. Went, I love Gentleman in Moscow, but Rules of Civility Me blew too. my mind. Oh my gosh, that's so I'm cool. so glad. Oh, that, see, I knew, I knew this about go. us. So many T-shirts. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, I love that. But right now, I'm really focused on um, just getting more sleep. That's like kind of my big thing because one of my problems is I read before bed <laughs> and then um, I like turn out my light and then I'm like, I probably have one more chapter left in me. I turn the light back on, try to read another chapter. So I have told myself like, it's time to get some rest. Daylight savings is coming. It's going to be pitch black after what, 530 on the East coast. So like, it's yeah. time to get more sleep. So sad. Always makes me sad. Yeah. I like my daylight. Oh mm. my goodness. Well, so what are you excited about that's coming up? You've got the podcast. You- yeah. So the podcast is like really fun right now. So we, um, so it's, it's something I co-host with Eric Johnson, who runs the career center at the Kelly School of Business in Indiana. And we met at a class a couple of years ago. We both come from this MBA world, um, but we talk about coaching. We talk about career development. We talk about leadership development, and we're really interested in this idea of meaning making. So how does work intersect with how we make sense of our place in the world. Um, That is a big creative project for us. Love it so much. Um, And then this fall, I'm doing a bunch of, I do a fair number of workshops for different organizations around career resilience, helping people figure out like when the world feels uncertain as it does, what can we do to build some stamina? So um, I keep all that stuff on my website. It's easy to check in and figure out what I'm up to. Um, I love Instagram. So I'm always trying to put some um, fun poems or other things I'm thinking about on Instagram. So I'm just trying to like get the word out that there is a path forward to designing a career that is meaningful for you and pivoting when it's necessary and 
growing in the direction that you choose. Here, here. What, um, so for people to find you, and I will put this in show notes, but what is your website address? It's my name. So it's www.nylabari.com. That's N-A-Y-L-A-B-A-H-R-I.com. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, Instagram, what's your Instagram handle? At Dr. Nylabari. There you go. All right. Yep. And I'll have it all in the show notes for you folks. And Oh, oh my, my God. God. We could talk for like three hours. I could. I could. I may have to have you come back at some point. This was awesome. Oh, I would love it. I love it. We can, we can, we can wear our t-shirts. Exactly. In fact, I just, I thought of another t-shirt. So many t-shirts. <laughs> That's the t-shirt. Yes. Wait, do you remember what, what was it? Was it like Michael Stipe? Was it like, I don't know if it was the Grammys or the American Music Awards years and years ago. The year that um, Losing My Religion was like the biggest song oh, in the world. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And he won, he was, and they were winning, like, I think they won like nine awards that year. And he was just wearing a series of t-shirts that every time you get on stage, he'd peel off. They were all political. This. You don't remember. I'm sure you of can course. find it on YouTube. But this is like uh, a memory of like someone who went to college in the 90s. Yeah. Um, every award he would get up and peel off the next layer of t-shirt and they were all these political activist t-shirts so that's going to be us except they're all going to be like weird mom things that yeah, we right. say can you imagine how hot he must have been <laughs> all those layers of t-shirt anyway that's all we could think about and on that yeah. note <laughs> bye-bye folks <laughs>